Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. Brought to you by myself, Grace Hill and Diana Bang. From fashion, beauty and homeware, Grace and I will cover industry topics and shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. Now, just before we get started, we want to let you know that you can see the unedited podcast filmed live in action by heading over to the edited YouTube channel. We'll leave a link in the description. You can see our faces up close and personal. (laughs) How are you doing, Grace? What's been going on in, in your world? Oh my gosh. Well, I feel like I have been freezing cold. It's been what the coldest start to September in 80 years. So I don't have any of the right clothes, freezing and spending a lot of time at home watching Netflix, but sadly on my own. I've been getting very much into, is it Million Dollar Beach House? And now selling Sunset. So I'm kind of thinking that maybe I'm actually pursuing the wrong career and that maybe I should be going into a a career in luxury real estate or property when I see those commission numbers. I'm thinking the same. (laughs) But I am. Um, I want to watch um, Mulan next. I think on Disney Plus and the Paris Hilton documentary, of course. And then Harry and Meghan Markle are going to become producers of Netflix as well. So I wonder what content they'll be making. Well, <laughs> according to the CEO, they have a a great eye for stories. So I'm sure <laughs> there'll be plenty to come. But it's interesting that Netflix stocks they dropped a bit, but I'm I think they were comparing it to the previous quarter where obviously everyone was watching during the pandemic. So probably had a high growth there. But um Jeff Bezos, he was worth, you know, from Amazon worth ten billion or he added ten billion to his fortune in one day. And I was thinking in the last week, what would I do with ten billion if I could add that? <laughs> what would you do, Grace? Oh my god, even ten thousand, I'd be like, I'd have a new kitchen. <laughs> With 10 billion, oh my gosh, I think I would probably get myself one of those houses that I uh, see on a million dollar beach house and live in the Hamptons or Saint Tropez and and have a private jet that I could fly in and out on. (laughs) Or buy the island of the house that it's on. Well, or or something eco friendly. Obviously, Harry and Meghan got a lot of stick for flying private jets. So I wouldn't be doing that, of course. And I'm glad to hear that they finally paid back the UK taxpayer for their uh, renovations on Frogmore Cottage. Now that they've got this huge deal with Netflix. <laughs> so what are we talking about on today's episode, Grace? So on today's episode, we have a marketing and communications expert or guru, should I say, who's joining us, who you might know as DKNY PR girl and the author of the best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. So we'll be talking about how to build a well-established brand in the retail industry. So on today's podcast, we have Elisa Licht founder and president of Leave Your Mark. Lisa was one of the first people in the fashion industry to launch a social media personality on Twitter. As DKNY PR girl, she organically built a multi-platform community of over 1.5 million followers. Welcome to the podcast, Elisa. We're thrilled to have you on today. Oh, thank you, Grace. Pleasure to be here. And hi, Diana. Hello. So how have you been during lockdown? Like, what have you been up to? Well, there's been a lot of housekeeping and (laughs) cooking and generally trying to just, you know, stay in a room that no one's in because obviously everyone's home. But I'm grateful because 
you know, everyone's healthy. So, you know, we can make a joke about the annoyances of it, but I'm trying to focus on the positive. Yes, exactly. I know. I felt the exact same way. I was getting really frustrated living in a house with six adults at home and not having the right bandwidth on the internet to be able to do a Zoom call. But the bigger picture is we're all healthy. and Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think I'm in like a one bedroom flat with my boyfriend, but we've stood the test of time so far. So that's impressive. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, that is very impressive. Any relationship that makes it through. We'll see. Elisa, it's so great to have you on the podcast. We're really excited to hear more about your story and experiences, but we'd love to hear how you came up with the idea of DKMYPR Girl on Twitter back in 2009 when it was, you know, really the height and start of social media. Could you tell us more about the handle and what your inspiration was? Sure. So my day job was SVP of Global Communications at Donna Karen and DKNY. And I had been there, gosh, since 1998. So quite a bit of time in 2009. And so I was a senior member of the team. And just like any other company who was sort of starting to notice these new platforms were popping up, we sat around in a meeting one day and we had a Facebook page, but we heard about this thing called Twitter and no one really knew what it was. And, you know, we were having a brainstorming meeting as to like how we would like start on Twitter. It was the second season of Gossip Girl. And we were sitting around, you know, brainstorming. And I was thinking, well, if Donna Karen is the handle, people will automatically assume the person Donna Karen is speaking. And as the publicist, I just felt that was very problematic because who's writing that copy? Who's going to be responding to people? Like, obviously, it's not Donna Karen herself. And then we can get in trouble. So I was inspired by, you know, pop culture. And I thought, well, Gossip Girl's anonymous. Why can't we have like an anonymous social media personality that's, we can make her like a fashion illustration. No one has to know who she is. Yeah. And then it's clear that this is like a fake character. So I sort of came up with the brand filter of what she would be like. And I, and I really thought of her like paper doll. So I really thought of her as this character. I thought about her personality. I wanted her to be your best girlfriend, but a bit aspirational. She'd be the person you'd go to for advice, but she always had like one up or like a better wardrobe or kind of like was going to the parties. And, and honestly, in the beginning, I would say to my team, who has the best plans this week and where should we have her go? So it was very much another, I mean, it was not me. It was definitely a character in my mind. However, general counsel, as they usually are quite restrictive, decided early on, okay, we're fine if you guys want to do this character, but we're not comfortable if multiple people have the passcode. So Aliza, you're going to be the only one with access to it and the only one who's allowed to actually tweet. And I I was kind of like, uh, okay, fine. I I didn't really know what that meant. (laughs) And remember, I'm still doing my day job. So this was like a side thing that I was like, oh, I'll tweet a couple times, you know, I'll answer some feedback, whatever. But then it started to really take a life of its own. And I started, you know, as we all do when we embark on a new platform, you start to learn kind of the environment of the platform and each one is so different. And you kind of start to see how content performs and was the content about, you know, DKMPR Girl doing, you know, an award season fitting with a stylist and a celebrity going to perform better than our handbags are now on sale? Answer, yes, Mm -hmm. of course. So I started to pay attention to that and go with what was working. So it became very much an editorialized version 
And then I started to get very protective over maintaining that editorial integrity because what would happen is sales would turn around and be like, oh, can you announce that Bloomingdale's is having friends and family? And I would be like, no, actually I can't because that's not going to perform. So, and because it was only mine to play on, it very much started to feel like, oh, no, 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 this is my jurisdiction, my decision. And I very much got attached to that concept. I was anonymous for two whole years before we decided to reveal the person behind the Twitter handle, which is kind of crazy. So just to like set the time in your head, started in 2009. In 2011, Instagram was just being born. So that is the year that I sort of came out. And then of course, I got an Instagram and I had already had a Tumblr and things like that. So it started to grow across platform. And, you know, by the time I revealed myself, the handle was over, just Twitter was over 380,000 followers organically. And the other platforms, Tumblr was growing as well. So it sort of started to just grow and grow and grow and grow. And then the reveal itself, you know, it had become such a huge secret. I didn't really realize how big of a secret until I tweeted this behind the scenes of Fashion Week video revealing myself which generated 230 million media impressions. And then I was like, oh, okay. So, wow, I had no idea. Oh my God, on the influence that you had, that you had, you know, all these people captivated and a story that you could tell in real time, because at that point, you know, real time was quite new. So that's impressive. Yeah. And, and, and also quite honestly, I mean, I loved it. I was so passionate about it. So I was tweeting like sometimes upwards of a hundred times a day and responding to everyone. So my mentality was not sort of, you know how luxury brands, they like push content, but they don't really engage with anyone. Like that was the opposite of my strategy. My strategy was, I am your best friend. Like, let's chat. Yeah. So it became this like real community of which I've made so many friends. I've hired so many people from Twitter. I mean, Twitter has sort of been the thread through my like last decade, really. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's fascinating, this whole, like, as Diana mentioned, like you kept the audience captivated and almost spoke to the kind of like exclusivity element and like trying to find out who is this woman, who is their lady behind it and like keeping the audience engaged and and excited for, for more. So how do you feel like you got that combined following of like 1.5 million in really a relatively short period of time over a matter of a couple of years? So I think we have to, first of all, be very honest about the landscape has changed. You know, building an organic community like that now, except for TikTok, which is clearly favoring content, it's quite hard to build an organic community. But back then... I think that my number one metric was always, to me, engagement. I always wanted to see that there was a reaction to content that I was posting. So I paid less attention to the follower count and more reaction to, do people like this content and are they engaging with it? You know, and I was funny. Like I, I really kind of, I mean, I was really myself. My personality tends to be maybe a tad snarky at times. And, you know, I created a sarcasm font because I I tend to be quite sarcastic and I always wanted people to know, like, it's a joke. This is funny. So I think, you know, giving people a behind the scenes view into a world that they're normally not privy to. You have to remember, until shows like Project Runway, the curtain 
in front of fashion would never pull back. Like people did not know what went on. And certainly in publicity, when you're working on awards season, when you're planning runway shows, when you're meeting with editors, when you're dealing with all of these sort of glam activities, people want to know what happens behind the scenes. So I was really forthcoming and, and transparent. You know, I wouldn't name drop celebrity names or stylist names, but I would say celeb X, stylist Y. And I would still tell what, exactly what was happening. And it almost didn't matter that you didn't know who I was talking about because the information that, for example, you know, in award season, the, the sample dresses go from stylist to stylist until they land on someone. Like people wouldn't know that that's a thing, yeah. you know, that, that they're sharing behind the scenes or conversely hoarding behind the scenes, you know, so sharing the process and giving a fly on the wall view, I think is what was really different. And I, and I also think, you know, DKY PR girl has at this point been credited for being a pioneer in humanizing a brand beyond the designer, beyond the spokesperson, right? Because before that, who spoke? It was the designer or the spokesperson. And now it was another character that was able to give voice to a brand. Mm -hmm. So interesting because brands now have to have like a purpose and a value and something that you can relate to. And with your character, you were able to open up that creativity and open up that conversation. I'm so intrigued by also that you, you know, in this situation, have to almost push back with teams internally, like from a legal or you said the general counsel of what you could and couldn't do. And so many brands now have difficulties with that, like a the openness compared to what, you know, they're allowed to say in the cast. Yeah. yeah. So- and actually to your point, I'll never forget. There was in the very beginning, general counsel was like, we need to review your tweets before you post them. Oh my God. And I was like, that is yeah. never going to happen. I, I made it really easy for her. I said, are you going to be up at midnight when I need to <laughs> respond to someone? Because give me yourself. I'll text you. And she was like, okay, well, maybe that's not realistic. And I'm like, right. So you need to trust that I know I'm a publicist. I know how to respond. Yeah. And they probably didn't at that point either understand the importance of that organic conversation and yeah, no. the nature of the technology and like what actually people are wanting from an interaction. on. Twitter. Yes. To your point, exactly. No one understood the platform, but also anyone who wasn't on the platform really had no clue. So I'll never forget one day, my CEO emailed me and he's like, I want to understand what you're doing on Twitter. And I'm like, okay, let's go into a conference room. And I pulled up the screen and I pulled up Twitter and I just tweeted, hey guys, I'm trying to explain Twitter to my CEO. Say hello to him and tell him what country you're in. And it was thousands of people across the entire globe. And he was like, they're just out there. And I'm like, yeah, it's like your own focus group. And he was like blown away, but it was the best example because it's real time. I love that, that you decided to do that. That was most impactful as well for him. Also, what I was saying is because like, how did that experience contribute to your career now? Can you tell us more about Leave Your Yeah. So on Twitter... I was always thinking about new content ideas. And one of the things that I was really passionate about was educating up and coming PR hopefuls or PR professionals. I would tweet out under hashtag PR 101 and I would give out little pieces of, you know, advice as to how to be a publicist and everything relating back to my job. And a lot of times people would tweet back and say, oh my God, that's amazing, but that's really life 101. So made me realize the advice was more general. And I did it 
really frequently. I wrote long form articles on the blog with different career advice things. And I guess it was just like a natural progression. I've always kind of considered myself a mentor to my team and to people around me, but it was just a natural inclination to do that online. So one day in 2013, an editor from Hachette, Grand Central Publishing, called me on my landline and said, Hi, I follow you on Twitter and I read your blog. And I think that there's a book in here somewhere. And I was like, that's so kind. Thank you so much for reading my work. But I have two little kids and a full-time job and I'm not going to write a book. And she was like, but why? And I was like, because literally I have no time to write a book. And I'm not like dying to write a book. (laughs) And she was relentless beyond. And she was like, you can write about anything you want. And I was like, again, thank you so much. But like, no. And she just didn't let it go. And finally, I was like, well, I'm not going to write a book about teaching my PR girl that my company is going to own. Because remember, I'm like a full-time employee owned by LVMH. Like that's not going to fly. Yeah. And at the same time, also, like, I'm not going to do all that work and not have it be mine. So I decided, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want it to be like a career mentorship. Like that's the reason I'm writing it. So, of course, I gave in at a certain point and ended up getting permission and all these things. And of course, the book came out in 2015. And really, without TQMPR Girl, there would be no Leave Your Mark at all. Yeah. And, you know, this year when I launched the podcast, that was sort of the new version of the book. And that has been so much fun, although so much work, as you both know. (laughs) And my consulting business is really just... I've taken all the things that I love from my corporate experience and now packaged them in this kind of rent a CMO format. So I kind of go into teams and embed with existing teams and focus really on creative brand marketing and digital strategy for fashion, beauty, and wellness. Mm. Without the human PR girl, I don't think any of that would have happened because I probably also wouldn't have left the company. Like I left the company when my book came out. Yeah. Honestly, I loved how you had kind of like described your current role in your business as like rent CMO. I thought that was so interesting and like a really great <laughs> way to position it. Like it was, it's really cool. And Thank um, you. so could you tell us more about, obviously that's what you're focusing on at the moment is obviously leave your mark and your consultant business. What are the key pillars in brand building in 2020? We know this year has been different to any other. Um, What should retailers and, and brands really be focusing on? So I think if you're starting from scratch, you know, your brand visual identity and your voice, which are two things that I'm obsessed with, are really your two most important foundational pillars. You kind of have to start with what is your reason for being? Like, what problem are you trying to solve? What value do you add to the consumer? Now, if you're an existing brand, you kind of have to go back to those basics, especially during a time when people are not really leaving their homes, right? They're maybe buying a few things, but there isn't this need of like going out and need a new outfit, date night, etc. Especially now I'm speaking to the retail industry. So you have to give reason, you have to go back to your roots and really think about like, why do you exist? What makes you different? What's your value proposition? And how do you communicate to the consumer across different platforms? So I'm really focused on helping clients think about how they show up in all different mediums. 
And right now, of course, you said it earlier, brands have to, they have to really stand for something. And the consumer, not just Gen Z, but the consumer in general now has come to a point where they need to know brand values. And I'm sure you guys saw recently, there was an article in Business of Fashion, like even influencers who are now breaking contracts with brands that are not sort of carrying themselves with the standards that the person themselves want to be aligned with. So there's this whole kind of revolution of what do I stand for and who am I surrounding myself with and what do they stand for? So I think that that is predominantly the number one things brands have to think about. I think from a marketing perspective, we went through a period where female empowerment was sort of like the catchphrase and every brand was by a woman for a woman. And it became like almost desensitized because everyone was doing it. And now, as we've seen, if you're preaching something, but you're not actually doing it internally, whatever it is that you're preaching, your employees are going to talk about that. And that has been sort of the new kind of Me Too movement that brands and, and big companies have had to deal with. And I think that it's high time because I know so many companies that do not practice what they preach internally. Mm. It's like everything reflects back on you. And I wonder if that's to do with digital, that it's almost like a mirror. It's like things that you buy, things that you shop, you have to relate to it or it, like you have to almost, it has to be a, a part of who you are as yourself as a brand. And this, like you said, the customers become much more savvy nowadays and can spot, for example, an airbrush campaign from a mile off or lack of diversity amongst leadership. Absolutely. So how should brands best navigate in a time where authenticity and transparency are hypercritical? I think they need to take a long, hard look at themselves and look around the room. And, and quite frankly, when people are applying for jobs, it's like, go on LinkedIn or a platform and look at the employees. Like, does anyone look like you? If you're going to go into a place where there is really no diversity and inclusion, that may not be the right fit for you. And I think that management, you know, I, I did an article for Forbes on how to increase diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And I think there's certain CEOs that have always practiced this and have always realize that if you have a diverse team, you're going to have a diverse group of thought. And that's what brings innovation. Like this is a positive thing. So take a hard look at yourself and, and make changes. But then on the other side, also, I think education needs to happen as far as employees themselves who may have their own set of biases that they don't even realize that are unconscious biases, or maybe hopefully they're not, they are conscious, to really also go through some sort of process where they can sort of open their minds more into a new way of thinking and being collaborative with different team members from different backgrounds. It's really interesting, like as a business edited, like we've all been through unconscious bias training. And I think it was fascinating. It like really opened my eyes as to like, actually, what does that mean? And yeah. like, how can we make sure that we're not practicing that type of behavior within the organization? Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes like, as Diana said, you almost need to like put up the mirror and say, okay, like, actually, can I see this type of behavior in our organization or how we operate? But obviously you've mentioned kind of education and taking a hard look at yourself. Like, are there any kind of other essentials, like do's and don'ts for our listeners that you would say are important to focus on at the moment? Yeah, I mean, my general rule of thumb is 
speak to the consumer the way that you would want to be spoken to. Like I've always, my entire career, when I'm reviewing strategy, like if someone had handed me a press release or a video to review, like if it's pages and pages long and I don't even want to read it for approval, why would the media want to read it? You know, if you're bombarding your consumer with constant spammy emails and you're targeting them on ads and you're just coming at them in every direction, like Mm -hmm. they're just going to completely tune out. They're just going to unsubscribe. And I think that we have to think about not just the frequency, but also the redundancies. For example, like if you're a brand and you have your own retail stores and your own website, but then you also sell wholesale and the wholesale, like if Net-A-Porte is running ads for your brand, but your brand is also running ads for your brand and it's the same consumer, it's overkill. So really understanding the strategy and, and combing through it to make sure there are not redundancies like that, that would really just annoy the customer. And also really trying right now to think about your product selection and what makes sense to market right this second. So like if you're an evening wear brand, I'm sorry, but like people are probably not going to that many black tie affairs. Think about how to pivot and innovate right now. You can't just say, well, we've always done it this way. So this is how we're going to do it. Like you have to constantly reimagine what the business can look like. Mm -hmm. So interesting you said about like bombarding with messages because Grace and I were having a conversation yesterday about body scrubs (laughs) and we were talking about it. And then on my Instagram, I was getting adverts for body scrubs. So there was someone listening. You know that. It's so scary. Yeah. And there's so much data on consumers out there. From your perspective, how, how do you cut through the noise and determine the ideal target market and customer profile for brands when there's so many consumers and so much data? Well, again, it goes back to the initial problem you're solving, right? I mean, you have to think about the value proposition for the consumer and what target demographic makes sense for that product. I always think about it from the perspective of who are your actual customers and then who do you want to be your customers? So, you know, those are different campaigns, right? Existing customer campaigns can be one thing and acquisition and acquisition campaign can be a totally different thing. Obviously, within your brand strategy and you shouldn't feel like it's somebody else's ad, but there's, I mean, there's multiple ways to sort of attract audience. So yeah. One thing I found extremely interesting, I know Diana and I, we work very closely with brands and and retailers and their product strategy. And sometimes you can, you know, see a huge disconnect between who their ideal target customer is and actually their existing customer base. So how can you approach conversations like around branding that don't alienate that loyal customer that you have that's coming back? Sure. So I have a lot of experience in this because, you know, working for an American heritage brand for 17 years, you know, at a certain point, the Donna Karen customer was getting older And we needed to target a younger demographic without losing our existing customer base. I think now the easy answer is you can still be aspirational. You can still try to target to a certain group as far as age range. But I think the bigger point is being eclectic in the mix of casting. And we've seen that over and over again. So completely not just race, but size, inclusivity, and making sure that you're representing everyone. I mean, 
I'll never forget back in the day, you know, brands weren't so vocal about sort of their political alliances. And, you know, Donna Karen herself was a huge, super, super close with Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and huge supporters. But she never sort of publicly went off about who she was voting for or not voting for because her mantra was, we love anyone with a credit card. Like, this is a business, right? So I think the world has changed since then. But I think that as a company, you should want your product to be as in many hands as possible. Certainly, if you're talking about logo-driven product and you wouldn't want your logo aligned with a certain group that you don't have the, the same ideals with. But at the same time, it's like the goal is bottom line increases. So you got to sell. So you have to think about that. Yeah. No, I love what you said earlier about you can have diversity in different groups of people within the organization. And my assumption with the business, let me know if, if I'm wrong, is that you would have one brand voice or one tone. Let me know if you can have multiple tones because uh, I haven't thought of that before. But how do you determine the most appropriate brand tone of voice with, with your clients? And it's interesting with um, the KNY PR girl, there was a strong kind of sassy personality, which I love. Um, how did And how did you decide that that was the right angle for the brand? So I'll start with that one. I want to tell you it was a big strategy, but it was really more gut intuitive because I felt like the Gossip Girl sort of inspiration, you know, when I was, remember in my day job, like I was working with TV shows, I was working with Gossip Girl, we were lending clothes to movies and things like that. So when I would think about the brand and who I want to see the brand on, it's like, yeah, I want to see the brand on Gossip Girl, like as a product placement alignment, right? So, you know, when you think about the voice of Gossip Girl, it was also really sassy. And it was also sometimes a bit snarky. And that felt right to me because I envisioned the clothes on that crew of people. And then just coincidentally, it happens to be very similar to my personality. So it was really more about me just writing how I speak versus thinking about it from the perspective of like, we're copywriting right now. Like a lot of brands take copywriting like, really seriously. And I think sometimes it's more effective if the words you're reading are words that you can picture hearing from someone's mouth versus just yeah. reading it. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's yeah. more conversational. And you can see a lot of brands have taken on that conversational tone with emails, etc. And certain brands that do it, it could feel like nails on a chalkboard because it's not right for everyone. So I definitely would not paint the Dikima PR girl paintbrush on every brand. Like that's like, you have to think about what you stand for. And I always recommend to brands, like make a brand filter list of adjectives that define who you are or what you want to be. And what are those words and, and who are your muses and who inspires you? And then think about the total environment of what that brand should live in from the perspective of brand voice and visual identity. So emojis, for example, brands overuse emojis to death. Mm -hmm. But if you're like a really sophisticated brand, why are you using an emoji? Mm -hmm. Your customer is probably not using an emoji. So just thinking about, again, who you're trying to reach and align with. And maybe I need to take the emoji tip for my own personal brand. <laughs> well, it's fine for your own personal brand. <laughs> Definitely. So... 
How, I mean, this is such a broad question and it's really big and, I, and it's a difficult one I can imagine to answer, but how do brands get to the point of being recognizable globally? So you've obviously got your like, your Nikes or you've even got like the Kardashians as a brand. Like, and also when do brands go too far in, in pushing their own brand presence? I don't think you can go too far in pushing your own brand presence. I think if you have the media budget to push your brand presence, go for it. Yeah. Um, so it starts with media budget. You know, nothing, none of this is free. You can say, oh, uh, PR is free. Okay, sure. It's free. But you probably have to hire a publicist. Celebrity dressing, yes. Can you dress people organically? Of course you can. If you want a guaranteed placement, you're going to have to pay. So influencer marketing, same thing. People are not, it's a career. We can talk about that later, but it's just the business. So I think, how do you get global brand awareness? It's always going to be a multi-pronged strategy. So it's going to be your PR. It's going to be your brand ambassadors. It's going to be your celebrity dressing. It's going to be your advertising. It's going to be your super smart and innovative use of social organically. It's going to be surprise and delighting your customers when they least expect it. So there's all these sort of tools, right, that brands can use to create global brand awareness. But the most important thing is repetition is reputation. The more you do something, the more you will be known for doing something. Mm-hmm. So Nike does it better than anyone. Yeah. I love Grace that you mentioned the Kardashians because what she's done, like beauty and underwear, and now she's doing homeware. And it's just like continuously bringing something that the consumer wants because basically consumers or the her target audience want to be her. So yeah. like, anything that she creates. <laughs> but also with regard to the Kardashians, you have to remember like they're masters of PR. Yeah. Masters. And you know, celebrities in general, they know that if they change multiple times a day, this is pre-pandemic, and they go to like really high traffic paparazzi spots in LA, they'll get shot multiple times a day because they're in new outfits. So there's tactics. Yeah. (laughs) But I love what you said earlier about having almost a world where you have the adjectives and you kind of define everything about that ideal customer and defining that piece of the brand. How do you create, I guess, brand handwriting that then stands the test of time that's timeless? in the eyes of the consumer. So, you know, thinking of Ralph Lauren and... Yeah, consistency. So a lot of times, certainly in fashion, and I experienced this in my own company, designers and creative directors get really bored and jaded quickly. So you can have... At DKNY, we had this thing, maybe you've heard of it. It's called the DKNY Cozy. And it's a sweater you can wrap like 12 ways, more than 12 ways. And it was like cash cow. You know, we sold it every season. It was like the most amazing sweater. and. All of a sudden, one season, I don't see it on the line list. And I'm like, where's the cozy? And they're like, oh, Jane, Jane's kind of over it. And I'm like, you can't be over. It's like saying you're over the Nike swoosh. Like, you can't just be over it. Like, that is an iconic product for your brand. So really staying true to those pieces that you have become known for. You can always evolve. You can always evolve. You can extrapolate. There's something called brand codes. So every house has brand codes. You know, so for example, Tory Burch is known for orange, or Hermes is known for, you know, the horseshoe bite, or, you know, Gucci is known for bamboo back in the day. Like those are things that like they're an arsenal of tools again that you can use, change, evolve, but never neglect 
Like you can't just retire them because they're valuable. So all of those icons help to find. Now, Ralph Lauren, he has been in business for over 50 years. There is never going to be a season that he does not produce a polo shirt with a horse on it and a cable knit cashmere sweater, period, end of report. It doesn't matter what trends are. So that's another thing. It's like not... This is not the same use of me too, but not being me too. Like, oh, it's all about leopard this season. So I have to do leopard. Like maybe you do, maybe you don't. Like what's right for your brand? Totally. So we've obviously seen the social media landscape change dramatically in 2020 with the explosion of TikTok during lockdown and Instagram usage is increasing, has increased by 40% since March. Like even like the fact that there's 5 million people using store, like viewing stories. How do you see social media evolving and like, and how should brands be adapting their strategies to these new channels that have been emerging? So I was speaking to a brand the other day who said, oh yeah, we're not, we're not on TikTok yet. Not even yet. We're not on Reels yet. And no, we're not on TikTok. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, why? And they're like, oh, it's not, it's not really right for us. So my feeling is come up with a strategy that makes sense for your brand to be able to play in a space that is literally determining pop culture. So TikTok, as an example, yes, in the beginning, was it like eight-year-olds? Of course. And did we want to do all those dance moves? Maybe not. And maybe, of course, I was someone, I was like, I'm too old. I'm not doing that. (laughs) But as a consumer of the content, which I am, you know, and that For You page, like all I watch all day are videos about dogs and home hacks. And I'm very happy on TikTok. Like I never need to see a dance again. Yeah. But from a brand perspective, what does that look like for you? Like what, you know, really spend some time on a platform and think about what people are posting. It's so incredibly diverse. I mean, think about how many doctors are on TikTok, Mm -hmm. like teachers. I mean, it's completely democratic. So there has to be, if the entire world is doing something and you're not, you have to think about why that would be. And then with regard to something like Reels, which is obviously a product extension for Instagram, Whenever a platform introduces a new product, they're going to be favoring content on that new product. So it's basically a carte blanche for a brand to get additional exposure because the platform wants people on there. So they're going to be helping you get exposure for that content. So to me, that's just like a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. I was even because I started on TikTok during lockdown and I'm in my 30s. <laughs> but wow, it's um, so much fun. Yeah. Oh my God, you could spend hours. <laughs> One of my favorites is a supermarket chain. They did an amazing TikTok, which you wouldn't think, but just these boys. That's, that's the thing, right? Like Waitrose, I know, Diana, you were like sharing yeah. that with me. Like as a supermarket grocery store, you would like never imagine them being on TikTok, but the content that they produced was so fun. And- oh my God, send it to me. I want to see it. You have to see it. It's so good. <laughs> Um, and you just mentioned Reels. So obviously with the news that TikTok being banned from the US next month, which video platform should brands focus on and what type of content resonates most effectively on those type of platforms from your perspective? Yeah, so I, I really don't believe it's going to be banned. That I'm just saying. I, I, I don't. But in case it is, I mean, I think, you know, it depends what industry you're in, right? I mean, YouTube is still a really powerful channel for video content, certainly. and you know, Instagram, I think fashion people favor Instagram no matter what. But 
you know, there are a lot of media companies that do extremely well on Snapchat too. So I think, again, you have to think about what you're trying to sell and to whom, and then it, and then you can work backwards and think about what platform makes sense. And by the way, I don't think you have to be on every single platform. I think you have to be on platforms that you can do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the platforms that have the most buzz and excitement, right? That are going to bring you attention and brand and yeah. that your consumers yeah. are looking to. I think it's interesting as well because like for you know our generation like I don't use Snapchat like I haven't used Snapchat in years and years and years but I've got a significantly younger brother who's at university and his friends they all use Snapchat like they're obsessed like that's still their favored like medium of like communication so I think like you knowing your audience and knowing what your customer likes to do too Yes. yes. And, and when you're strategically trying to reach a certain target audience, you can think about the platforms from that perspective too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So in April, we had a cash meta on our podcast and he discussed how Instagram influencer marketing is on track to be worth up to $15 billion by 2022. And obviously we know that as you are a founder of the American Influencer Council, we'd love to discuss how influencer marketing has changed in the fashion industry in, in 2020. Kiana Smith is the founder of the American Influencer Council, which was launched on the 10-year anniversary of Social Media Day, June 30th, 2020. I am a founding board member. Mm-hmm. I'm the VP for the council. And... You know, it's funny when Kiana and her deputy director, Alex, called me to be a part of this. The first thing I said was a trade organization for influencers doesn't exist. And she's like, no, not in the U.S. And I was like, the CFDA, but for influencers? She's like, yeah. I'm like, it doesn't exist. And she's like, no. And I'm like, how? This is a massive industry. So she actually started the legal process of forming this trade organization about a year and a half ago. You know, The world has a very kind of love-hate relationship with influencers and specifically the word influencer. It brings on negative connotations for some people. And I think that we saw in the very beginning of the pandemic, the headlines were influencer marketing is dead. And there were all these scandals with certain influencers who were, you know, handling the pandemic without empathy and things like that. And then now in real time, we realize, oh, no, influencer marketing increased like tremendously during COVID because creators are nimble and people who can create at home were really valuable when big brands couldn't go have these like multi-million dollar photo shoots for ad campaigns. So... I think that the world has finally realized that it's not going away anytime soon. And some of the focus that we are prioritizing at the council is really education and learning for people who really want to be career influencers and people who are coming up in the industry now who maybe have no mentors and don't really know what best practices are. We're also working with the Federal Trade Commission on standardization and ethics. We're working with the platforms because it's confusing. Like on certain certain platforms, you would disclose ads one way. On another one, it's another way. It's, it's just a whole big mess of things. And I think the consumer is really the loser in it because it's not clear. Yeah, And really, public goodwill, we're really trying to kind of show the great work that influencers are doing in a variety of industries and spaces. So influencer marketing is just going to keep growing and growing. And I think that it's not the kind of thing where marketers need to be 
kind of wary of it anymore. I think it can be highly effective if you form partnerships with people that make sense for your brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we work with a lot of retailers and brands that during the pandemic couldn't use models and had to use influencers to promote their products. So it's almost yep. like they, they got an even more like a bigger stage during the pandemic because they knew yep. how to use video and they knew how to use digital well. But it'd be great to hear what other significant shifts do you see happening when brands connect with consumers in the next few years? What are the like taking a lens into the future, the crystal ball. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I think we've been out of store for so long. I think that that trend is going to continue just because from an efficiency standpoint, I think people now are like, I'll just get it online. That was happening anyway. You know, a lot of these issues, if you will, were pre-pandemic too. Like, Certainly at brands, if you had brick and mortar, you were constantly struggling trying to think of ways to get people in store. Now it's worse. So I think digital is going to be just continue to grow, 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 grow. Mobile's going to grow. And, you know, AI and VR, I think, you know, VR is still not quite there, but AI is definitely popping up more and more. And I think brands being creative and innovative in ways to make the consumer feel like they're there and shopping in the store, but they aren't, or if you're on vacation virtually, I think using that technology to really immerse the consumer in your brand is going to become more and more common. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't believe we've come to the end. It's gone, it's flown by. But Lisa, what is the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? Well, I think I'm going to quote myself, my Instagram post today, which is how I woke up feeling, which is really asking yourself, why not? I think a lot of people are pivoting right now or trying to pivot or have ideas percolating, but they're not quite sure. And I think a lot of times we mull around for months and and try to think of the perfect strategy. And I've never been that way. I've kind of been like, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to run with it and see what happens. So I think, you know, not waiting for perfection, whether you're working on a brand or you're working on your own brand or you're trying to launch a business. I think having the why not mentality and jumping in and figuring it out as you go can be a lot more beneficial than waiting for all this time for the perfect strategy. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. And I think in your podcast as well, just for our listeners, Elisa's podcast, she talks with really prominent people in different industries and provides career advice from CEO bootcamp, Barry's Bootcamp to actresses and designers. And I've just found it so inspiring in this podcast. So thank you for joining and sharing your story. It's been... Oh, thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. You guys asked great questions. And yes, thank you for mentioning the podcast. It's Leave Your Mark. The book is Leave Your Mark. And I will say for the podcast, I really tried to create episodes that have very actionable career advice that you can literally press stop and be like, oh, I can actually do that right now. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't, sometimes I feel like they leave you like, well, that's great for that person, but I can't actually do that. So I really want people to feel motivated and inspired to sort of take that next step in their careers. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you so much. As a listener of ours, we're here to support you as the retail industry enters a new era. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all our listeners, ensure you subscribe to the Insider Briefing 
sign up at editor.com where we'll be keeping you all updated on the latest news and strategies. Thank you for listening to Unedited. If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Elisa, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with future episodes. And please tell all of your friends and family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can get in touch at unedited at edited.com or tweet us at edited underscore HQ. Goodbye.